So we've been in this series for a couple of weeks, and the interesting thing about Matthew is that Matthew is a book that is trying to convince us that Jesus is the king. Matthew is the book that's trying to help us recognize that Jesus is not just any king, he's the supreme king. He's the king above all other kings. And so Matthew goes into a lot of detail to try to convince us that Jesus is that. We covered that ground a couple weeks ago, but the theme verse that I've picked from this book for us is really the verse that uh, shapes and describes our dilemma when it comes to Jesus. It comes out of the end of the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 27 uh, verse 42 says this, he saved others, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. In the room here, we've got the words up on the screen for you guys to follow along. That's also in the app. But there's just something about that where the people would say, he's the king, and yet we still might not believe in him. He's the king, but he has to do something more to convince us that we need to change any aspect of our lives. Like, that's not the way kingdoms work. That's not the way kings work. But the other problem with this king is that he's currently hanging on a cross about to die. And no one has ever followed a dead king. You know the phrase, the king is dead. Long live the king refers to the next guy. It never refers to the guy who's just died. No one follows the king who's dead. And so they're facing this dilemma. This dilemma is that he's supposed to be our king. He acts like a king, sort of, in some ways. He's fulfilling the prophecies of a king, and yet at the same time, he's on the cross and he can't save himself. So they say, let him come down and we will believe in him. This is our dilemma. See, we don't want a king who dies. We can't even understand that. More than that, we don't want a king who allows himself to go through such hardship, frustration, and pain. We don't understand that. And we don't like it because, you see, if the king is willing to go through hardships, that means he might let me go through hardships. And I don't want a king unless that king can make my life comfortable. If that king is doing the things that I want in my life to be done, then I'm okay with that king. In fact, what I've said a couple weeks ago is that we don't want a king who's just going to be the king or a king who does any of these other things that Jesus might do. What we want is a bully, just so long as he's on our side. If the strongest person is on our side, then we feel great. We feel good. We feel encouraged. We're like, okay, now I understand life because the strongest person is on my side. And when Jesus is hanging on the cross, it's very difficult to see him as the strongest person. And so they ask the question, if he comes down, we'll believe in him. Here's the review for where we've covered, what ground we've covered so far in the last couple of weeks. We learned that Jesus is the great king, the most David messianic king of all the David messianic kings. He is the promised one from the prophets. He is the greatest, the king of kings. We learn that he is both the king of glory and the king of suffering. And we saw that in the first couple chapters of Matthew. See, Matthew is trying to lay the groundwork so that by the time you get to Jesus' crucifixion, you will be prepared for this kind of king, even though the people who were there at the moment were not prepared. They hadn't been paying attention as closely as Matthew thought they should be paying attention. But Matthew himself also hadn't really realized that until after the death and resurrection of Jesus. But in his text, he tells us that Jesus is the king of glory and of suffering. Then also in the text, he tells us that Jesus is the king of victory through selflessness. We think victory comes through power. We think victory comes through strength. We think victory comes when a person steps up and says, okay, I'm in charge, I'll take care of it. We love the victorious story of the hero who takes charge. We don't so much understand the story of the hero who wins a battle by denying himself. Selflessness is what we see in Jesus. But all of that was preliminary. Today, Jesus begins to step onto the world scene and build his kingdom. Today, we open up a passage where Jesus has to take the lead 
And he does, but in some ways that no one, no one expected. So if you've got a Bible that you want to turn to, or if you're just following along in our app, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 25, and I'm just going to go ahead and start reading it. It says, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee, leaving Nazareth. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, I don't I don't expect you to have a real strong grasp of ancient Palestine. Uh, Every time I come to one of these things, I I need to look at a map myself. And so in a couple minutes, I'm going to show you a map so that you can see exactly what Matthew's talking about here. But I want to start with that first line. It said, when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison. Remember what John's job was? Matthew quoted for us the passage in Isaiah where it said John was the one who was the voice in the desert calling people out, prepare for the way of the Lord. Prepare the way of the Lord. John was the person who said, the king is coming, so you need to repent. The phrase we used for that last week is, get over yourself, the king is almost here. John was the preparer. And when Jesus shows up on the scene, John made sure everybody knew that Jesus was the actual one they were waiting for. Now, if John is the preparer and he has just been removed from the scene, where does that leave Jesus? It means the preparation is over. There's no more prep work to be done. The preparer is gone. And the only thing that's left is for Jesus himself to step up and be the king that the preparer said was coming. And so the next couple of verses, you're going to see Jesus step into his kingdom, beginning to step into his kingdom. But like I said, it's nothing like any of us had expected. Because the first thing Jesus does is he leaves Judea. John was baptizing down near the city of Jerusalem. That's where kings were. That's where King Herod was. But as soon as Jesus learns that the preparer is gone and it's time for him to step up, he leaves Judea. He goes back up north to his hometown of Nazareth in Galilee. Now, um, Matthew doesn't give us any detail about Nazareth. He says Jesus went to Nazareth. He said he went north, and then leaving Nazareth, he went to Capernaum. But Luke actually gives us a little bit more detail. Right after Jesus was tempted, he goes north to his hometown of Nazareth, and Luke gives us a little bit extra of the story. In, verse, in chapter 4 of Luke, we're told that Jesus goes into the synagogue, and in the synagogue, he gets a scroll from the prophet Isaiah, and he reads a section of it, and he's so impressive to the people that they're like, where did this guy gets such education and instruction. We know his dad, the carpenter Joseph, and he's not that bright. And so they begin to doubt and question Jesus. And he says a couple things that rub them slightly the wrong way. And they just decide, listen, we can't put up with someone who's this far out. And so we come across the passage in chapter four, where it says this, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard what Jesus said. They got up, drove him out of the town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built. I love the contrast that Jesus had just been on the crest of a hill on a cliff and Satan said, just jump off or, or worship me. You know, those two temptations that Jesus got from high up. And now the people are taking Jesus to a high up place and they want to kill him. They want to push him off the cliff. Little they, do they know that Satan himself thinks Jesus is going to be spared from that. But nonetheless, they're ready to push him off the cliff. But that doesn't matter because... He walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and on the Sabbath he taught the people. They were amazed at his teaching because his words had authority. Jesus goes to Nazareth. He's not welcomed. And then he goes to Capernaum where they were amazed at his teaching because his word had authority. Luke wants to emphasize that Jesus is not welcomed in his hometown. And in particular, Luke wants to emphasize the specific things Jesus said in the synagogue that day when he read from the prophet Isaiah. Matthew's got a different agenda though. Matthew skips right over the whole Nazareth scene because Matthew is rushing as fast as he can to get away from the Jews. 
Matthew is rushing as fast as he can to get to Capernaum because there's something that Matthew has seen in the book of Isaiah that he wants to highlight for us. And so Jesus said something from the book of Isaiah in Nazareth, but Matthew has another angle that he wants to point out to us, and he just can't wait. So he skips over the whole Nazareth thing. Let me read to you again from verse 13. It says, Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Let me show that to you again. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. Let me just clarify something for you. Zebulun and Naphtali have not lived in that region for 750 years. Matthew says Jesus is going to Capernaum, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. However, 750 years before Jesus, in 721 BCE, and Jesus is now about 30, in 721 BCE, Jesus was not around, but Zebulun and Naphtali were, and Zebulun and Naphtali were these two tribes in the northern part of Israel that was wiped out by Assyria. And when I say wiped out, I mean eradicated. I mean the people who lived there were dispossessed and transported to other parts of the Assyrian Empire, never to be heard from again. If you've ever heard the phrase, the lost tribes of Israel, those are people who are talking about the 10 tribes in the north that are lost to history. We don't have a single genealogical record that connects any modern person to any one of the ten tribes in the north of Israel, including Zebulun and Naphtali. 750 years before Jesus. But the weird thing is, the weird thing is that Isaiah made a prophecy about it. The people living in the darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You've heard this. You've heard it every Christmas. The people walking in the darkness have seen a great light. It comes from Isaiah chapter 9. People are very familiar with that. But they never pay attention to the Zebulun and the Naphtali part because it's like, what do I know about that? Well, let me show you. I I think it might help to see some maps. I said that earlier, so I'm going to show you a couple maps. Here on the screen, we've got a map of Palestine. This is Palestine during Jesus' day. Now, I know you can't see all the little dots and all the little lines on it, so I'm going to zoom in just a little bit as uh, much as makes sense for this passage. And you can at least see that the bluish purple area to the west of the little sea up there, the little lake up there, is Galilee. That little lake is the Sea of Galilee. There's a river called Jordan that runs south to the Dead Sea, the lowest part on the planet, lowest uh, elevation on the planet. And Galilee is way up north by the Sea of Galilee. And you can tell it is nowhere near Judea. In fact, Judea, you have to go south from Galilee through Samaria to get to the region of Judea. I'll put the big picture up here. The the Judean region is the, the lower half of the big orange blob on the west. But Jesus goes up to Galilee. And now let me show you just, I'm going to blur it all out and put two stars up there. They're still pretty small, but you can see the star on the west is Nazareth and the star in the right next to the Sea of Galilee or the Lake of Galilee is Capernaum. And so Jesus had first gone up to Nazareth, his hometown, but then he goes over to the lake or sea. Back then they used the same word for whether it was a body of fresh water or salt water and whether it was large or small. And so we frequently just call it the Sea of Galilee. But Jesus goes up to Capernaum. But this is the part that I want you to know. I'm going to overlay a map of where the tribes lived back in the ancient, ancient times when Moses and Joshua first, when Joshua first entered the land after Moses had helped them determine who was going to be where. The red area is Zebulun and the yellow area is Naphtali. Nazareth 
is in the area that was Zebulon. And Capernaum is in the area that was Naphtali. And so because Jesus went to Nazareth and then to Capernaum, Matthew, who's the super Jewish person, you know, he's always trying to address the people who really know the Old Testament prophecies, the people who know that David's name means the number 14. He's trying to address the super fans of Judaism, and he's like, wait a minute, Nazareth is in Zebulun, and Jesus went there first. And Capernaum's in Naphtali, and Jesus went there second. That means Jesus went to Zebulun, and then Naphtali. Lo and behold, that's the same order they show up in the book of Isaiah. And Matthew's like, I got to say this. I got to just mention Nazareth just so I can get it out there. But I want to talk about the fact that Jesus went to Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, I've spent a lot of time on this. And the reason I have is because I need to remind you that no one from Zebulun lives near Nazareth. And no one from Naphtali lives near Capernaum. The names Zebulun and Naphtali are lost to history, basically. We don't know a soul from those tribes. And Matthew says that Jesus is fulfilling that prophecy. Those tribes aren't there. Nazareth is there, Capernaum is there, but the tribes aren't. And Jesus is somehow fulfilling that prophecy. How can Jesus fulfill a prophecy when the people aren't even there? Well, it's because Matthew knows what Isaiah really meant. The prophecy was never about the people of Zebulun and Naphtali. The prophecy was about the area. Check it out. We're going to look at Isaiah chapter 9. I'll show you what the first three verses actually say. It says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he, talking about God, humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by way of the sea. Just so that you know, the Hebrew word for nations gets translated by the Greek word ethne, which is also the same word we translate as Gentiles. So that's why Matthew says Galilee of the Gentiles, and they translate Isaiah's words as Galilee of the nations. It just so happens that the word nations to the people of Israel later on became the word Gentiles, and it referred to all the people who were outside of the nation of Israel. See, Israel was the nation. All the other places were the nations. But the point here is that Isaiah said in the past, did you see that? I told you it was 750 years before Jesus that uh, Assyria conquered the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, 721 BC. Isaiah writes these words about 100 years later, about 600 BC. So that means for Isaiah, Zebulun and Naphtali are already gone. For Isaiah, he knows that in the past, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali was humbled because the people were removed. And that region was humbled. But that was in the past. What's coming next is not humiliation. What's coming next is honor. And he says this, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. When we first started this church, Uh, the most popular way to try to reach new people was through direct mail. And direct mail advertising is not that big as much anymore because most people just go to their mailbox and like bring a shredder with them to the mailbox because they just don't care about whatever's in there anymore. The, the fact that you might someday get a handwritten note from someone, you're like, wow, that would stand out. So all the rest of the stuff just basically goes in the trash. And we don't get a whole lot of junk mail, at least at our house anymore. Maybe you still do. But when we first started the church, we knew that the best way to reach people on a mass scale was direct mail. This was before all the internet advertising was really all that popular and hip. And so we decided we were going to get into the direct mail game. But I'm a cheapskate and I hate wasting money. And so I decided that what I was going to do is learn everything I could learn about direct mail so that we could get every loophole we could possibly get. And don't get me wrong, I did it. We were able to do direct mailings for under 10 cents per piece. 
sometimes as low as seven cents per piece. Now, that was because here in Lafayette, there was a, distrib- a regional distribution center. The post office we had was a regional distribution center at the time, and you got a discount for that. And, and then you would have to create your mail a certain size, and you'd get a discount for that. And you'd have to sort it in a certain way, and you'd get a discount for that. But there was one discount that I never thought would be a discount, but it was. The cheapest address on a piece of mail are the words current resident. Because if you put someone's name on that piece of mail, legally that mail has to go to that person. Even if they're at a different address. That's why the post office forwards mail or destroys it. Because the mail has to go to that person. And so if I put a person's name on the mailer, then they were legally the people who were responsible to get it. And the post office, if they couldn't deliver it to that house with that person living inside it, they would charge us more money. And so the cheapest way to address anything is current resident. Now you understand why the mail you get says what it says on it. But it's the cheapest way. What God has done through Isaiah is he's made a prophecy and a promise to current resident. The people of Israel lived in Zebulun and Naphtali, and they thought that God's blessings were all about them. They thought that God's blessings were supposed to fall on them. And yet, what really happened was God was making a promise to bless, and the blessing was going to happen in this area. You can imagine, think of it like a really, really slow beam of light. God turns on the light, and it takes a really, really long time to come down. And as it's coming down, the people of Zebulun and Naphtali are doing silly things. They're not following God's law. Eventually, the people of Assyria come and wipe them out, take them away. New people come into the area. They settle the area, and the beam of light still hasn't hit. But eventually, that beam of light is going to hit, and Isaiah says when it does, it's going to be Gentiles living there. And there was that line in verse 3. I'll put it back up on the screen. It says, a light has dawned, and then it shifts to the pronoun you. And it says, you have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. That you is talking about the light. The light was always going to be the Messiah. Isaiah knew that. The light was always supposed to be the king. Isaiah talks about that in this very chapter. And so now that the light has dawned, Isaiah addresses in prophetic fashion the Messiah himself. And he says to him, you have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. There were people living in Capernaum and Nazareth in total darkness about God's will, in total darkness about the arrival of the Messiah. But Jesus shows up. And Matthew wants you to know that Jesus is the king who shows up to increase the joy. Not the joy of the Jewish people alone, not the joy of the special chosen people, but the joy of whoever is near him. The joy of the current residents. Because Jesus isn't about the kingdom of Israel, he's about a kingdom with far bigger borders. Our king expands the borders. We don't like that. See, we like our nice little tight border situation. In all of our lives, we create borders around our lives. And we like our borders to be clear and well-defined so that we know what gets in is only the stuff I'm going to like. And the stuff that stays out is the stuff that needs to stay out. We love having our little borders. And that means when we get a king... We want a king who's going to secure our borders. We want a king who's going to protect the things that we have drawn around us that say this is us and that is them. But Jesus shows up on the scene. And the first thing he does as the king, the first thing he does as the king is to fulfill a prophecy of expanding the borders. I want to say open borders, but that's going to sound too political. And so I'm just going to say Jesus is widening in the Isaiah fashion the borders. It doesn't matter if you thought you were in or you thought you were out. We're about the current residents. 
We're about whoever, whoever, whoever is near enough to see this light. The light is for them. And anyone else who wants to come towards the light can come towards this light. Jesus is the king who expands the borders. We want a king to secure our borders, and Jesus just expands them. Our problem when it comes to Jesus is that we read the Bible through selfish eyes. We always want the Bible's blessings to be about us. The people of Israel thought that too. Zebulun and Naphtali had received a promise from God that if they followed him, they would live in this land and prosper and it would be great and wonderful all the time. Little did they know that the promise would stay even when the people had left. Little did they know that the blessing was still on its way even after they were wiped away. We read the Bible through selfish eyes. I'm sure you've seen this passage before. Jeremiah 29, 11 says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. We love this verse. This is one of those assurance verses. This is one of those verses that says, God is on my side. God has a plan for me. God wants to give me some hope. God wants me to have a good future. And we view this verse through selfish eyes. Do you realize that this verse was given to people in the southern part of Israel who were about ready to be carried off to Babylon. And God says, you're going to be punished harshly for 70 years, but I won't give up on you, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Sure, you can embrace this verse if you want, but remember that this verse might come on the other side of 70 years of suffering. God is not just about you. He's about a plan. And his plans might include you and might involve you, but part of his plan might be to chastise you and me and to put us through hardship. Because his plan is not just about this little individual kingdom I want. His plan is about his kingdom. Or this verse, Jesus uh, excuse me, um, this verse shows up in, in Second Chronicles. It happens as there's a thing going on with the temple and they're, they're celebrating and, and Solomon is like, you know, I'm dedicating this temple and God says to Solomon, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. And we love that passage because we want God to heal our land. We just want God to heal our land the way we want him to heal our land. When I first became a pastor, I got a job up in Chicago. And during my interview process with them, I remember sitting down and I wanted to challenge them to find out how flexible they really were to let me lead. This is my first time being a pastor, being a leader. And so I knew I needed a lot of flexibility because I wasn't going to do everything exactly the way they wanted to have it done. And so I asked them a crazy question. I was like, okay, so here's the deal. If I said that I thought we should put a bowling alley on the roof of the church, what would you say about that? And they said, well, if God told you to do it, we'd go along with you. And at that moment, I immediately knew they were lying, but maybe not, and maybe we can still make this work. Um, So anyway, we went there, and it came clear to me within the first year that everybody wanted me to change someone else. Everybody had a person in their mind who needed to change in their church. And it was going to be my job to change that other person. Just not them. And that's the way we view Scripture. We're like, God, I want you to forgive my sin and heal our land. And specifically, I want you to forgive that sin and that sin and that sin. And I want you to heal that person because they're messed up. And I want you to get some solution to that person because they're messed up. And I want you to heal all. And the whole thing starts with if my people would call, who are called by my name, will humble themselves. Not to mention, this is also a passage of if I ever, God says, if I ever have to punish you and send you off into exile, then from wherever you are, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. This verse also happens on the other side of the punishment when God says, yeah, I'll restore you 
but I restore you on my terms, not yours. Our problem when we look at the king is that we want a king who's our king. And Jesus is not your king or my king. Jesus is the king. And so when he begins his ministry, he says these words. Verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. It's basically the same thing that John the Baptist would say. And as I said before, it's Jesus saying, get over yourself. The kingdom is coming. It's not about you. It's not about any particular thing. It's not about a political entity. It's not about a category of person. It's not about a cultural expression. It's about the king. And the king gets whatever he wants. The king does whatever he wants. Let me show you. In Matthew chapter 4, we get to the next phase. In verse 18, we get to the next phase of what Jesus is doing to build his kingdom. And the next phase is to get some people on board. It says this, As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon also called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. You probably heard this story before. Simon, guy called Peter. By the way, Peter is the nickname that we would say Rocky. Uh, literally, the word Petros in Greek was the word rock, and uh, Kephas in Hebrew or Aramaic was the word for rock, and Peter was sometimes called Kephas. And so we know that Peter wasn't called Peter because Peter was a name. We know that Peter was a nickname that literally translated means rocky. So he was Rocky. His name was Simon, but everybody all called him Rocky. There's only a, one kind of person you call Rocky who's not named Rocky. And that's a person who acts like Rocky. Have you seen the movies? Have you seen the movies? A guy who can get bludgeoned and still stand up, that's a Rocky. A guy who uh, might fall down a hundred times, but he'll get back up 101, that's a Rocky. This is something about Simon was Rocky. Whether he was big and bulky, whether he was ripped and, and cut, whether he was just a guy who would get back up after a, a brawl, I don't know, but he was Rocky. You need to understand that. And he's a fisherman with his brother Andrew. They're casting their net into the lake or the sea of Galilee. Then, come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Matthew doesn't tell us this, but James and John also had a nickname. You know what their nickname was? Sons of Thunder. Now, you don't get the nickname Sons of Thunder unless your dad is Thunder. Or, unless the two of you are so thunderous that they have to conclude that whatever power thunder is must have been born in these two dudes. And so these two guys are thunderous in some way. So Peter and Andrew are Rocky and Andrew. I feel bad about Andrew not having a cool nickname. But James and John are the sons of thunder, and they're working with Zebedee, their dad. We also learn from other passages from Mark that they're in a boat with hired hands as well. And so they've got a whole business operation going on here. But let's see what we see. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee preparing their nets or cleaning their nets. We're not exactly sure how to translate that word. Preparing can mean to get ready. Preparing can also mean to clean after you've been um, fishing. But preparing is probably the best translation. Jesus called them and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, I decided to spend some time on this passage because there are three really interesting things that I think we can learn from it. And the first one is that our king welcomes people we wouldn't. This king, Jesus, welcomes people that we wouldn't. Ordinarily, it wouldn't be our you know, desire to welcome these particular people. And, and let me explain a little bit. First of all, if Simon is called Rocky and these other two dudes are called Sons of Thunder... My question is, do you think they were nice to each other as competitive fisher business men owners, you know? 
Do you think they were always looking out for one another? Do you think that when Peter comes in from a night of fishing, he immediately finds James and John and tells them where the best fishing hole is? Do you think James and John, when they come in, they go up to Peter and Andrew and say, listen, guys, you're going to have a great experience today, so, you know, good luck to you? Do you think they share any of their advice, any of their resources? I'm just guessing but I think they are probably rivals. I think they are probably competitors. Because as you might know, this area is right next to Bethsaida. We're told that Jesus is in Bethsaida, the region there. Bethsaida literally translated means fish town. And so if Peter and Andrew and James and John are in fish town and they are fishermen who have enough success to own boats and hired hands and all this stuff, they must be successful. And I have rarely known two competitors who are successful to also be helping one another. Here's my hypothesis. My hypothesis is that Peter and Andrew don't like James and John. My hypothesis is that James and John don't like Peter and Andrew. My guess is that they are competitors, and clearly one of them is winning. Because you'll notice that Peter and Andrew are already in the boat casting their nets. James and John are not yet on the lake. They're still preparing their nets. So either Peter and Andrew are winning in this daily grind of fishing, or James and John are cleaning their nets after a night of fishing, and so now they are done for the day, and Peter and Andrew are just getting started. Either way, they're out of sync. And I wonder, if I were James... Would I have wanted Peter on my team? Jesus calls out to Peter and Andrew. They drop their nets. They follow him. And then immediately after that, he reaches out to James and John. And there's a part of me that just is thinking that Peter and Andrew are like, seriously, Jesus, them? And whether or not my hypothesis is true, at the very least, Jesus selects for his team people who are unqualified. I think they were probably successful fishermen, which means I think they were probably, they probably had a significant amount of money somehow stored up. And you know what? Even though they had the success in fishing, they definitely were not religious people. They definitely didn't know the Bible as well as Matthew thinks he knows it. They definitely didn't know who Jesus was supposed to be. And when the religious leaders of the day see guys like James and John and Peter and Andrew, they're going to be like, no, I wouldn't have picked them. And yet our king, for some reason, welcomes people we wouldn't. The next thing I'll point out is that this king chooses the path for us to walk. Man, I don't like that either. I want to pick my own path. I want to choose my own direction and just have God get involved when my path gets rocky. When my path gets messed up, I want God to swoop in, solve my problem, and then get out of the way so I can keep walking on my path. That's generally the way I think most of us like our life to work. But Jesus goes up to Peter and Andrew and he says, I'll make you fishers of men. Don't take that job. Listen. It's a lot easier to fish for fish than it is to fish for people. See, when you're fishing for fish, you put some stinky bait into a net or into the water and you drop a net and then you just sort of wait around and then when the net does its job and the fish do their job, you pull the net back up and you take a club, you whack the fish on the head and they don't bite you back. But when you're fishing for people, you gotta, man, bait is so hard. You've got to say the right words in the right way at the right time with the right look on your face and the right body posture using the right technological or personal medium to get it done, phrasing it just so and absolutely doing it in, in such a careful, simple way that they don't bite you back. It's a lot easier to fish for fish. But Jesus doesn't say, come follow me 
and let's see if I can do something good with you. He doesn't say, come follow me, and you keep being you, but let's see if we can improve you somehow. Jesus says, come follow me, and I will change you. And I won't just change a little bit of you. I'm going to change your whole identity. That leads to the third thing. To follow this king is to leave it all behind. These people, when they followed Jesus, they had to leave everything. They had a successful business, I imagine. At least James and John and their dad Zebedee had hired hands, we know from other gospels. They had a successful thing going. They were fishermen in fish town. And yet they had to leave it. They just walked away from it. They walked away from the from the nets, from the boat, from the income, from the family, from the friends, from the connections, from the safety and security of their own competitive silos into a new place where now they're supposed to relate with the other person they don't like so much. Read the Gospels. You'll find a lot of rivalry between Peter and James and John in particular. It shows up a lot. I think Andrew must have had a calmer attitude. Maybe that's why he never got a nickname because he doesn't really ever show up in some of those conflicts. But, but nonetheless, these people had to leave everything behind because this king is the kind of king who says, repent, turn away from yourself. Because the kingdom is coming. When he sets up his kingdom, this is not a kingdom where the king shapes himself to match you. This is a kingdom where you lose yourself as you follow the king. It's a threatening thing, but it's what they did. And so let's finish up the story. And this is fascinating to me because Matthew summarizes in the next few verses the entirety of Jesus' ministry. Literally, the next few verses summarize everything Jesus does in his ministry. And you're like, wait a minute, you just say in three sentences way too much. Check it out. It says, Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases. Those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and the region across the Jordan followed him. That's everything. He's teaching. He's doing miracles. He's healing people. Crowds are following him. That's basically the whole thing. At the end of Matthew chapter 4, you know all the stuff. You don't know all the details. But I'm fascinated that Matthew would do that. He would put all of that amazing stuff into a summary phrase. Just as a tag-on, it almost feels, to the end of chapter 4. And as a tag-on, there's some things in there that I think we can really understand. Matthew is not telling us this stuff because he wants you to know all the intricate ways that Jesus helps people. If you want to do that, you don't summarize. Matthew isn't summarizing like this because he wants us to know all of the specific details Jesus was teaching people. Now, he covers both of those things later on. He does. In fact, next week, we're going to dig into the best sermon ever preached. Jesus is what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And then after that, we're going to get a lot of miracle stories where Jesus is really caring for people and showing love for people. But Matthew here isn't trying to give us the details of his teaching or he's trying to give us the details of his healing. Here, Matthew has one agenda. That's why he summarizes it. And his agenda is to talk about the power, the authority of Jesus. Did you notice? There isn't a single sickness that Jesus can't match. Matthew says that Jesus heals every sickness. That doesn't mean that 100% of the people who are 100%, who, 100% of the people who are sick will always 100% of the time get healed. That's not what he's saying. It's also not what he's saying about what happened back then. It's not that every single person in the entire region who was sick got healed. 
It's not that Jesus just waved his arm and magically all the sickness went away. Definitely the people came to him. But the point Matthew is making is that every specific type of sickness was wiped out by Jesus. Demon possession, no problem. Sickness, no problem. Paralysis, no problem. Jesus has it all taken care of. This is a summary because Matthew's point is not about how Jesus serves you. Matthew's point is about how Jesus has authority over everything. Do you realize that all of the people that Jesus healed, 100% of them, eventually died anyway? A lot of times we view the healing and miracle stories from a Disney fairy tale perspective. Jesus healed the man and he lived happily ever after. But that's not the way life works and that's not the way these people's lives worked. He healed their sickness and then later, eventually, at some point in time, they died. In other words, it was never Jesus' intent to give them perpetual comfort. Jesus doesn't heal them so they will be comfortable because they're eventually going to die anyway. They're eventually going to face other hardships anyway. Jesus heals people to demonstrate that nothing stands in his way. Literally nothing can get in the way of what Jesus wants to do. The way I'd put it is that our king, this king, does whatever he wants. But what he wants are the three things we've seen in this passage. He wants to expand the borders of blessing. Jesus doesn't want to meet your niche needs in the kingdom of you or me. He wants to expand the borders of blessing because he's the king of something far bigger than you or me. He does whatever he wants. And what he wants is to address the hurt of the hurting. People are hurting and Jesus does address their hurt. He's demonstrating his authority over their hurt and then takes it away. Yeah, it's just a moment, but it still shows that Jesus knows they're hurting, he knows they have a need, and he meets them where they are. Our king does whatever he wants, and the third thing he wants to do is to put you and me on a path to do the same. Come follow me, and I will change your life. And then he immediately goes into all these things. You see, Peter and James and John and Andrew, these guys, they had no idea what was coming. All they knew was that they were supposed to follow Jesus and he was going to transform them. And then they immediately see Jesus do these things. He's expanding the borders. He's healing Gentiles, not Jews. He's meeting people in their hurt where they are hurting. And he's rescuing them from, even just for a moment, he's rescuing them from that hurt. And these guys are walking along with him for the express purpose of their lives being changed into being people who follow Jesus. Even when Jesus is no longer on the scene. So let's just review. Our king, this king, is building his kingdom. And the question that you and I need to ask ourselves is always this, am I still trying to build my own? I've got two options. I can build my kingdom and hope that Jesus' kingdom lines up with mine well enough that I can find comfort and peace and prosperity or whatever. But I still want to build my kingdom. I just want to be an ally of Jesus' kingdom. I just want to be sort of near Jesus' kingdom. Or... Am I going to be an actual resident of Jesus' kingdom? Have I decided to stop building my own and to just be in his? If you pay close attention to what Jesus does and how he does it, he shows up on the scene, 
He demonstrates his power and his authority. He calls you to join. And then he transforms you. It's an act of grace. He does this work. What do you do? What do I do? All we have to do is drop our nets. All we have to do is simply say, I'm no longer interested in building my kingdom. I, I, I want to I follow the king. So we drop our nets. We follow the king. We see some amazing stuff. And he changes our lives. Over the next week, I want to encourage you to be a person who at every single moment when you feel like something is going wrong, ask yourself the question, is it going wrong? Am I frustrated because I'm still trying to build my kingdom or am I willing to be part of his kingdom? Every time something goes right, I want you to stop and say, hang on a second, is this thing going right because I'm so good at building my kingdom? Or is it going right because somehow I've connected with something that God wants in my life and for me? And maybe sometimes it's going right because you're building your kingdom and God really wants something else for you that's going to take a journey to get to. And sometimes it's going wrong because you are in God's kingdom and he has to break something away from you in order. I can't tell you that it's going right and you're in his kingdom or it's going bad and you're out of his kingdom. What I can say is that your job and my job is to ask ourselves this question constantly. Am I still holding the net? Am I still in my own boat? Am I still waiting for that next crop of fish? Or am I willing to just drop my nets? Let me pray for you. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.